0: Okay, this summer what we're going to be doing uh, in Summer RUF um, is a um, discussion through one of my favorite books. And I'll go ahead and tell you straight uh, at the beginning that all of the material which we're going to be covering is based very loosely on uh, this particular book. Uh, One of my Old Testament professors when I was in seminary was a guy by the name of Richard Pratt. Uh, Some of you may remember that you met Richard here in my home Uh, a year and a half ago when he came uh, and did a a brief lecture for us while he was passing through Oxford and did a thing on the kingdom of God and just did a wonderful job. Well, Richard's the author of a number of great books on the Old Testament, one of which is called Designed uh, for Dignity. Uh, And it's one of my favorite books uh, that Richard's ever done uh, because of how well it deals with an issue that with every passing year that I do campus ministry becomes more important. Uh, and because it's um, the summertime, I always like to pick a topic that sort of is a hobby horse of mine that I like to sort of <laughs> uh, uh, dwell upon a good bit. And it all centers around this whole issue uh, of the idea of story. Uh, and again, please, y'all, y'all interject with me, get involved. If you've got questions and whatnot, please, we want this to be as interactive as possible for the next 25 minutes here or so. Um, a number of years ago, there began to be a whole spate of books and research and literature um, talking about the power of stories in the life of human beings. Okay, um, and it was something that, if you really start to think about it, you'll go, "Oh, that really is true." In other words, they began. Researchers began to notice that for The idea of story patterns more of our understanding of self than we could possibly imagine. I've gotten to where I push the envelope even further that one of the best ways to help you understand you is to begin to think about yourself in terms of a story in which you are living. I've gotten want to say that you are, whether you realize it or not, uh, the star of your own movie you are living out some sort of narrative, if you will, um, that at any given time can be about all different kinds of things. Uh, sometimes our, sor- our stories are happy stories. Sometimes they're very sad stories. Uh, sometimes our stories are action adventures, you know, where we've got this task to accomplish. Uh, at other times, our stories are high drama, right? At any given time... People are beginning to understand that you understand how you work using the idea of a story. And this is even pushed to the level of, forgive me for the budding philosophers out there, this is even sort of um, pushed to the level of what we would call epistemology. Do not know what I mean when I use that word? Epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. Uh, knowledge uh, this is what your philosophy 101 class was about right you know how do you know what you know how do you uh, how do we achieve certainty about what we know well epistemology studies that and what these philosophers are discussing or discovering and what psychiatrists are dis- discovering is that even our thinking like we make sense of our thoughts through the idea of story, that there's, a, that there's a tale that's being told that helps to color all of our lives. And here's the funny thing is, I'm going to bet you that you can identify times in your life at which that story became very vivid. Let me give you a couple of examples that at least occurred to me, and maybe you can think of other ones. Um, do you remember the first time? Maybe this never happened to you, and that's okay. Um, but do you remember the first time that you ever heard somebody else refer to you as their best friend to somebody else, you know, like you overhear them talking. It's like, oh, you know, uh, well, you know, Sam and I have been best friends like for years. And you suddenly were like, oh, we're best friends. Now, maybe you were happy about that. <laughs> maybe you were weirded out by that. I don't know. But it was weird to have somebody sort of place this definition on your relationship. Well, that person looks at me as if we're best friends. Okay. What does that mean? And suddenly you had to live with this new self-definition or at least in your relationship to that person. Um, how about this? How about people that you know who have had very traumatic experiences with family members growing up? How about that time when you know, uh, there was a, an abusive relationship even in your family? Uh, or have you spoken with people who have had abusive relationships in their family where they look back on that time and the event becomes larger than itself? It's not just a thing that happened to me. It suddenly became this defining this defining event in me. It was me. Um, how about this? How about when you got that bid to that fraternity that you wanted to be in? Or when you got the bid to the sorority that you wanted to be in? What was the, what was the rush that came over you? You suddenly looked and said, wow, I'm a K.A. now. <laughs> I'm a Sigma Chi now, right? I'm now a Chi-O. Suddenly there's a new self-definition, a different story that we're living, right? I've even begun to realize, and I, again, I'd love to hear somebody disagree with me on this one because maybe this is just me. I think this is the reason why you like the music that you like. Have you ever thought about why it is that you like certain music and there's so many people around you like, man, that stinks. That music is awful, uh, but you're looking, going, how could anybody not like this song? Song's awesome. Just listen. Listen. You're trying to get other people to listen to it. Why does Why does music affect us the way in which it does? I think music's very powerful to create a little bit of kind of a a fantasy. You know, uh, sometimes aggressive music can kind of draw out of me this idea of being something other than the aggressive self that I am. You know, romantic. Uh, um, Uh, Sappy songs can sometimes call me away to the idea of being, you know, someone who is in love or something. In other words, I'm trying to impress upon you that almost every single moment of your life you're being impacted by story. Okay, so what? What does this mean? Well, we're asking the question this summer, what does it mean for you to be you now, today, in this room Now, for many of you, that answer is somewhat, that question is somewhat already answered by the fact that you spent a Wednesday night in the summer to come to a Bible study, okay? (laughs) For some of you, you're at least acknowledging on some level that God is attempting to tell a story about me. Now, suddenly that becomes very interesting. Because if there is a God, and let's, you know, pretend like we're actually in college in a very pluralistic setting, and there may not be everybody that you meet who believes in God. You may not believe in God yourself, I don't know. Uh, you may have dear, dear friends who sort of push God to the periphery if they believe in him at all. But it's a it's a it's an interesting notion to think well, if God is there and he really created me and he fashioned and formed me, doesn't his idea about me <laughs> like kind of trump all the others? <laughs> in other words, how does God define me. There are a few more powerful things that can happen to you than to begin to suddenly see yourself in the story that God is telling about you in the Bible. Follow me? Look, there are times in which a mere song can throw you into a depression or can pull you out of a depression. There are times in which the mere encouragement from a good friend of yours can pull you out of a, de- a depression. Or discouragement from ring and throw you right back in it. In other words, you can believe a story at a turn. What happens when suddenly we begin to believe the Bible's story about us? What happens to us? That's our discussion this summer that we want to look at. The Bible is more than just a book about God. The Bible is a book about human beings. And because of that, the interaction between the two forms a unique way for us to know what it means for us to be ourselves. This is what Pratt says in his book. He says, The reformer John Calvin helps us understand the Bible's focus on us. He rightly observes at the beginning of his famous book, The Institutes of Christian Religion, it's one you need to log down somewhere, that was one of the important ones in the Reformation, that we understand who we are in the light of who God is. God is the creator and we are his creatures. Without viewing ourselves in this light We will never grasp what it means to be human. That's the question with which we grapple. And I want to look at it under two simple headings. Number one, what is the plot of our life? Number two, what are the main characters? Number three, what does that mean? That's three points. I said two and that was three. (laughs) But we can do this very briefly. Okay, what is the plot of our life? Well, if you brought your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Actually, I can just read this uh, to you. I'll have my own personal sword drill here. Uh, as we look this up. Matthew 6, verse 10. This is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I probably don't have to recite this for many of you. But it's very interesting that when Jesus gave His people a prayer that they ought to pray, He helped establish our priorities in life, did He not? And what's the number one priority there? Well, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. That's it. For the Christian story... Every individual is going to be defined by this idea that there is a kingdom coming. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that in just a couple minutes. But bear with me to say that in Jesus' prayer, that you ought to pray on a regular basis, and some churches do every week. My church often does every week. Um, we're praying first and foremost for the kingdom of God to come. But the question is, what does that mean? Kingdom come. Um, does that mean we want Jesus to come back? Uh, that's a little bit different. Uh, what does it mean? Well, he answers that question, in the very next line, "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." In other words, the meaning of Matthew chapter six verse 10, okay, when we ask for the kingdom to come, simply means that it would begin to look on earth like it looks in heaven. Does that make sense? What does the kingdom mean, Les? That's a theological word. What does that mean? Very simply, it just means that the kingdom shows up whenever it begins to look here like it does in heaven. Does that make sense? Well, that ought to lead us to a couple of questions. Number one, what does it look like in heaven? Well, for those of you who got a chance to sit with us through our discussion through the book of Revelation last fall, I hope uh, that this sounds a little bit familiar because what the Bible says in the book of Revelation, especially chapter 4 and 5 is that at the very center of all reality, in this world that sort of permeates our world and surrounds our world, but is invisible to our world, there is a throne. That's the most prominent feature of what is there. A throne that God sits upon where He rules over all and in all. In other words, every single aspect of creation has no doubt as to the fact that He is in charge That's what's at the center of the universe. Um, And no one can resist submission to this God. He is the all-powerful God, the all-conditioning God, the all-controlling God, the uh, uh, the all-fashioning God at the center of the universe. That's what it looks like in heaven. When we get to heaven, there is a fundamental activity, and that is standing with our mouths open in awe of what we see in the mere presence of God. Now, Again, for most of us, that sounds like a little boring. Well, Revelation chapter 4 says that that's not so much the case. (laughs) And if you're interested in that, you can go back and listen to our podcast from the fall uh, to look into that. So that's what the kingdom of God looks like in heaven. Well, what does it look like on earth? Well, not so much. (laughs) Um, It looks a little bit different, does it not? In other words, God's kingdom here on earth is decidedly different. His rule remains largely hidden from view, does it not? We don't necessarily see his absolute control over every area of life. Why? Because it's obscured by sin and the rebellion of his creatures. We're going to talk a whole lot more about this in the weeks to come. um, But that at least is what what we're saying. So what is Jesus saying? When Jesus comes to earth at this sort of momentous occasion of human history called his advent, the first thing he says is repent For what is at hand? The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, you're going to have to start to adjust your lifestyle. Because guess what? The kingdom of God is breaking in. It has begun with my advent. Okay? Now look, what that means is, is that right now, according to Jesus... (laughs) Talk about authority. According to Jesus... God, right this very moment, is unfolding a great plan to advance His kingdom throughout all the world. That's it. That's the story of the Bible. What's going on in human history, right? Well, there's a lot of things going on. Gas is $4 a gallon, right? And doesn't show any signs of stopping. It went down today. Oh, wow. Well, hooray, hooray. <laughs> we hope that things help, help go in that direction. Uh, There's a credit crisis in America. There's growing concerns about international markets with China. And there's a vast ocean of things that you can look at and think define our culture. But every Christian looks and says, though those things ebb and flow, gas prices go up and down. There's one thing that we know is absolutely true. God is about the business of fixing the world. He's fixing the world. He is setting the world to rights. He's taking everything that is screwed up and He's healing it. He's repairing it. And He's about the business. And Jesus says, what I come to do on the cross is here to make all that possible. I am launching a major, huge, earth-shattering offensive in my work that will not stop until I come finally at the very last day and set it all right for the last moment. Does that make sense? The plot of your life Early, or excuse me. The plot of every person who is trying to live the Christian story is one of saying, I'm about the business of advancing God's kingdom. That's it. That is the story that is being told about you at this moment from the Bible's view. And the mere and the act of faith, which we all struggle with. What does it mean to have faith? Now, I believe in Jesus. Well, I believe. I mean, I prayed this prayer when I was in junior high. Is that what I mean to believe? Well, uh I hope it's a whole lot more than just that. To have faith in what the Bible says is to adopt God's story as mine and to begin to live as if that was true. And the plot of that story is the advancement of the kingdom. Second question. So who are the main characters in this? (laughs) Because when you look at that, you say to yourself, well, that story sounds like it's mostly about God, not about us. Ah, but there's good news in this story. Because the Bible teaches that God has decided that the main tool that he's going to use to advance that kingdom are his creatures. That's the beautiful idea about this, is that there are these people that will go and be his representatives, and they are from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, announced with a very peculiar uh, uh, description. Turn back over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. You can open up your Bible and it'll be right there. Genesis 1, 26. Listen to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is the primary description of who you are as the main character in this story. You are a creature who is created in the image of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) Uh, Well, I can assure you that there's no lack of ink spilled from religious types like myself who have written about what that means. But I think it's pretty simple. And Richard Pratt has done a lot of great research in this area to help us understand this. Listen to what he says about this. He says, To begin with, we have to understand our unique title in the context of Old Testament history. Moses and his Israelite readers, to whom he wrote the book of Genesis, if you remember, understood these words because they lived in a world full of images. The most dominant images in the cultures of the ancient Near East were those of kings. Think about this. Throughout the ancient world, kings made images of themselves, and they placed them at various locations throughout their kingdoms. Pharaohs of Egypt, the emperors of Babylon, and the kings of other empires used the images of themselves to display their authority and their power. Does that make sense? There were all these ancient kings who in order to show people their own authority created these images. And they used to describe these statues the same word that we have in the first, book of, first chapter of Genesis. Does that make sense? Y'all, that's what it's talking about. There is a king who has fashioned images of himself. You and I, human beings, fashioned in God's images, living with the same purpose to be his representatives. You are His representative. The world and all of creation knows that God is there because you are His image. Okay? So those are the main characters. Okay, last thought, and we'll finish with this with hopefully some questions and some thoughts here. What does that mean? I think it means two things. Two, at the very least, simple definitions. And we're going to kind of talk about this all summer long about this. What does it mean to be me according to the Bible? But at the very least, we can say two things. To be a creature in the image of God, first of all, means that you have a title of humility. (laughs) Number one, it shows humility. We are images of God. But, y'all, that's all we are, is images of God. In other words, from the very beginning, wanting to be God was man's original temptation. There is always going to be an inertia. You follow me? It's like the, the wheel of your heart is always going to be out of alignment. And when you take your hands off on it, it's going to pull you in a certain direction. And one of those directions is going to be to think way too highly of yourself, to exalt yourself, right? Um, But it's very interesting. The the Bible begins by kind of putting us in our place, (laughs) right out of the gate. As a matter of fact, in the verse before this, it says, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. (laughs) Right out of the gate, the Bible looks and says, Look, Let's not get a little too uppity, shall we? You were formed from the dust of the ground, and to dust you shall return. And therefore, there's an inherent humility that every person who begins to investigate the truth claims of Christianity discovers. I ain't that big a deal. Now look, for some of you are looking kind of going, well, that doesn't help my (laughs) self-esteem. Okay, well, bear with me. We're going to talk about that in the second point, which you can probably see coming. But look, suffice it to say this, that almost all the history of all human tyranny, y'all, started with someone elevating themselves over another class of people. You realize this? All human tyranny begins by elevating oneself to the level of a god, being able to say that you're the one who is in control. You know, our professors, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they want to sort of liberate me from the constraints of my humanity, encourage us to make your own rules, right? Right? Don't listen to what somebody else tells you about what's real in the world. Make up your own sort of reality. Decide for yourself. The truth of the matter, it starts from the very beginning of life. My children were subjected to blues clues, you know, on a regular basis. And they were told every single week what's the theme of blues clues and the song? You can be anything you want to be. You know what? That's not true. <laughs> you cannot be anything that you want to be. Neither can my children no matter how positively I put that to him. Now, some of you are questioning my parenting right now. I'm thinking, does he like say that to his kids all the time? No, not necessarily. But it's true, isn't it? I can't be anything that I want to be. I'm, I've got all kinds of restraints, intellectual rest- uh, drawbacks, physical drawbacks. All kinds of things keep me from certain things. Um, how mu- think about this. Put yourself in perspective. How much do you know about your great-grandparents? Literally, specifically about your great-grandparents. Some of you may have known them for a short period of time. But how much do you literally know about their lives, their thoughts? Guess what, y'all? In a couple generations, they're going to forget you, too. I know you're all thinking, why did I come to RUF tonight? <laughs> this, is such a, this is such a happy time and occasion. But it's so important to grasp this first. The Bible puts us in our place, y'all. Right out of the gate. Garrison Keeler is this guy who does this... Um, Radio show on NPR called Prairie Home Companion. You may ever heard this. They did. They did like a, a movie a couple of years ago, didn't they? Some of y'all listened to it. Um, it's a great piece that he did where Garrison Keillor went to a hospital to kind of follow a doctor around for a while, and <laughs> he ended up going to follow them on all their rounds. And he was very. Uh, it was a cancer ward or something. And one of the things that Keillor said just completely devastated him was how the doctors, when they got into their little like a uh, lounge talked about their patience, you know? Like, literally, they would sit around this table and be like, well, you know, we lost Mr. Mister Brown today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, hey, when are we playing golf this afternoon? <laughs> and, you know, Keeler was just so devastated by it because he was like, wait a minute, somebody ought to, like, be so devastated by this that they ought to, like, take the rest of the day off and, you know, go home and just cry. <laughs> and he thought, you know, the doctor would be so heartbroken at his own death that he would go and do that, right? Um, we all kind of wish for that, don't we? That uh, all the doctors are going to be so heartbroken when we finally pass away that they'll <laughs> they'll be so devastated they have to take the day off and go home, right? Uh, and uh, mend themselves. Look, y'all, our days are so short. They come and they go so fast. Think about the last few years of college for you. How fast has it gone by? It is a blink. Uh, 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 that we face. And the idea of being in the image of God reminds us of that and keeps us from being a little too high on our horses. But secondly, <laughs> that we'll end happily, right? It's a, di- it's a title not just of humility, but of wonderful dignity. Look, y'all, is there any better thing that could be said about us than to say that we are creatures created in the image of God? God has imprinted on every single creature an unspeakable dignity, and an infinite value. So much so that he would tell his ancient Jewish people that if somebody ever took somebody else's life, your life would have to be taken. And we see that as barbaric and hideous in our day. But the idea was that it was a great value of life. We value the life that was taken, and so therefore it can only be paid for in its own currency. Because life is that valuable, it's that important, right? Every single society in human history has had an underclass a collection of the worthless. And every Christian culture has refused to talk like that. We don't use that language. We don't talk about a those people in Christian circles. <laughs> now, I know some of you who know a little bit of American history are saying, Uh, yeah they do. And guess what? To the degree of which they've done so, they've been out of accord with what the Bible teaches about man being created in the image of God. And Dad Gummet shouted from the rooftops. Because your generation has to own that just like every generation does. You know, professors of biology, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt, they're doing it for what they believe to be good reasons, work very hard to convince us that we're nothing more than matter in motion. Well, please, someone tell me that if that is all we are, a bundle of molecules, how are you going to get meaning and beauty and respect and, and, and right and wrong out of a matter of molecules? How are you going to get that? We are infinitely more than that. You are a valued, respectable, infinitely cared for creature because you are fashioned in the image of God. And it ain't just because you came to a Bible study on Wednesday nights in the summer. It's because you're fashioned in his image. Richard Pratt tells a story uh, in his book about when he was at Harvard getting his Ph.D. and there's a statue of John Harvard in the center of campus that some protesters one night had uh, splashed green paint all over and he went out into the courtyard the next day and listened to the policemen saying, you know, these kids just have no respect for, these school, for this school. And it was interesting that he thought to himself, that's interesting, they defaced the statue, the image. Why? Because it represented the entire school. You follow me on that? Therefore, God has always looked and said, you will respect the image of God in every one of God's creatures because it's the reflection of me. That's my image in that particular thing. Look, y'all, this, I would argue with you, is the persistent reality of the modern of the Christian world. In the Christian world, you are both an object of great dignity and an object that is capable of great harm. <laughs> you are a great big fat mess, and yet you are absolutely beloved at the exact same time. And you have got to learn to work through that sort of weird dichotomy, paradox, if you will, before you ever begin to understand the Christian story of your life, right? Am I a screw-up or am I a success? Well, the answer to that question is it's complicated. The answer is yes. (laughs) There are some senses in which I can look and say, I've screwed up all kinds of things in my life. And there are other senses in which I can say, and yet God has loved me beyond anything I could imagine. That dual reality is the dual reality of the kingdom of God that has broken in on life and brought joy and wonder and hope and resurrection while at the same time we continue to live in a world that is screwed up beyond belief and will constantly shock us day in and day out. That is the key, y'all, to a distinctively Christian way of looking at ourselves. Okay. Thoughts, comments,